It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. When we experience a difficult time, we may believe that finding joy is too hard, too much to hope for, and only for those who are resilient enough. According to today's guest, Dr. Thamit Sethi, joy is an innate human right accessible to all. She joins us to help us rediscover joy, not as a destination or solution, but as a practice for healing. Dr. Sethi is a board-certified integrative family medicine physician and clinical associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She has spent the past 25 years working on the front lines of the most marginalized communities, as well as globally with victims of school shootings, survivors of hurricanes, and citizens impacted by police violence. Dr. Sethi is the author of the book, Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. Welcome, Dr. Sethi. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, I'm really excited to be here. Doctor, in your book, Joy is My Justice, you discuss how we can shift our nervous system and biochemistry into joy at the cellular level. But before we talk about that, let's look at joy and happiness, which are usually used interchangeably. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Yes. I mean, I think there's a big difference. There's some overlap in that both are pleasant and both are really desirable. I would love to have both as much as possible. But happiness is a binary construct. It's a cognitive evaluation. You're either happy or you're something else, and it's attached to an outcome. It isn't bad, but that's just how it works. And joy, in contrast, is a deeply embodied experience. It comes from the same deep well as your pain. It comes from the same capacity as love, meaning, connection. And so joy is a much more expansive feeling and allows us to have a sense that we can feel something different, even if the cognitive construct of our life is not happy. Well, you know, when someone is going through a difficult time and a person says to them, you need to be happy or feel your joy. I mean, I remember when I was going through deep trauma and someone told me to find my joy, I I was like, are you kidding me? Joy in in what? How do I find joy in this? So is joy important in order for us to heal? I think it is. And and this is what I would say is that when uh, I feel you, when I've been in deep pain, it feels like there's no way out. Right. And the thing is that suffering does that. It narrows our lens. It makes everything feel unsolvable. And our emotions around that pain become very solid and fixed by uh, understandably. Right. But the thing that joy can do is expand those feelings so that we can acknowledge the anger, the sadness, the grief, whatever we may be feeling, and allow 
a little more fluidity. You know, um, J.D. Salinger, I didn't know this when I wrote the book. I wish I did. But J.D. Salinger wrote that happiness is a solid and joy is a liquid. And I actually think that really captures a lot right there. It's just that joy can flow in and out of all of our emotions so that it's the way that we can be at a funeral and feel such deep, weighty heart loss, but then have a moment in the same time of laughing with our family about this person that we miss so very much. It's a way of reflecting the weight of our pain as a reflection of our love. I remember early in my career, I interviewed a woman who was a quadriplegic and she explained to me that after she had her accident she wanted to commit suicide she didn't see a future for herself and she didn't want to be alive and someone had given her advice one day they told her to be grateful for the small things in life and and immediately she said what do you mean be grateful I'm not grateful for anything and the person said I didn't tell you to feel grateful I told you to be grateful And so what this woman explained to me, what she did was she started to be grateful for the little things, the bird outside the window, her physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And she said the, the amazing thing that happened after just being grateful is that over time she started to feel grateful. So does it work the same way with joy? When we're in pain, if we start to be joyful, will we eventually feel joyful? Well, I think you've really captured it. What I would say is that, yes, but the way to be joyful is through tools that I frame in my book at like gratitude, self-compassion, breath, movement, et cetera. And I offer them, though, in a different way, like this person did, in a, in a lens that can be accessible for someone in deep pain. Because I'm with your friend or this person that you met. Um, it is very hard. I talk in the book about uh, my own experience of having a fatal illness diagnosis from my child and how, you know, I just thought joy was never to be had again. Uh, And I didn't want to live this life. Who wants to be a mother in that kind of situation? And what I found, though, is that in these moments of accessing my power back, because all of being paraplegic, having a bad diagnosis, living in oppression or poverty, there's no way to justify the good in that. And at the same time, what they've done is strip our power, stripped our humanity, made us feel small and hopeless. And when we reclaim our power through these tools, like this person did by being grateful, we start to feel connection to ourselves. And that allows us to connect back to the world and feel like we're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while we're talking about the way we feel and in our mental health, the trauma that we experience also impacts us on a physical level. So would you just explain a little bit to our listeners what happens to us physically when we stay stuck in that trauma? Yes. So trauma, we're well aware now through decades of beautiful research and uh, dissertation on trauma that it lives in our body long after it happens. And the reason it does that is because At a moment of great loss or trauma, we actually have changes in our nervous system that are there to protect us. We're not broken. They're working very well. They help us either run away. They help us uh, get numb and withdraw from the trauma. They help us just deal with it in the moment. But what that does is actually make us hypervigilant in our nervous system and so that we're unable to feel safe 
or feel ease in our body through that trauma and long after. When we reaccess tools that bring us to joy, we actually are doing the sort of repair work we need, where we tell our nervous system, you are safe, you are okay in this moment, even if the life as a whole does not feel fair, right, or just, in this moment, you are safe and okay. And slowly, we bring our nervous system back into balance. You just briefly mentioned a few of the tools that you write about. Would, would you share in a little bit more detail a couple of your favorites? Yeah, someone asked me what my favorite was, and I said, that's like asking me what, you know, my favorite <laughs> child. <laughs> but I have many. But uh for me, actually, my favorite go-to is movement, and uh, for me, it's dance. It can be any kind of movement for anyone, whatever is accessible, and if you're in a wheelchair or walking with a cane or not walking at all, it could be just shaking or spinning in your chair, and movement does something really amazing. The science actually shows that we express molecules from our muscles with any movements that can be anti-inflammatory, that can be repairing, and so much so that the scientists call them hope molecules. I mean, I find that really powerful and inspiring. And these hope molecules really allow us to expand into our body. I tell my patients all the time when they tell me I feel stuck, I say the mind cannot move if the body does not. And uh, for me, when I'm feeling stuck, when I'm feeling very anxious, very sad, I have to move my body. And so I describe different kinds of active meditations in the book, but I also just turn on my favorite music and literally dance. Um, another one that I really love uh, is it, what's called emotion labeling. And I, and I offer this because if your listeners are thinking, how can I even do this? This is so simple. I'm not saying these things are easy, but they're simple. Is that, you know, there is science to show that if we suppress and try to dismiss all our emotions, we actually make our nervous system more vigilant. I find that really powerful because what we think we should do is say, you know, I don't want to feel sad. I'm just going to try to feel happy. And what we show is that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to actually simply label your emotions as you feel them while you're going through the day. It's not the bigger work of therapy, which you can do in parallel, but it's a way to manage and label emotions as they come up so that you're acknowledging them, but not necessarily getting stuck in them. And what that does is actually bring us out of our threat center in the middle of our brain and bring us into our center of clarity in our frontal cortex. So it's as simple as saying sadness, anger, whatever you see, taking a deep breath with it and sitting with it more or moving on. I find that really powerful. I, I describe how to do it in the book because it is something that's accessible all day, any day. You don't have to stop and go meditate or, you know, do a meditation under a tree. You can really be doing this through anything. One of the tools that I started to use in my life, and I'm so happy that I found it, and I would love your take on it. We hear a lot about the power of affirmations, but for me, I think they weren't working as well because I really wasn't believing what I was trying to tell myself. So I started to practice affirmations where you are opening up more to possibility, you're getting your brain involved in the thought process and in the mm. problem solving. So instead of saying, I am whatever, I start to say, what if I am? 
What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that is a more effective tool? So I actually first want to say if it's more effective for you, then yes, it's Mm -hmm. more effective. And I really mean that because everybody's roadmap to joy is different. I think that what is missing from the sort of zeitgeist around just, um, you know, affirmations in general is acting. um, I don't believe that it's right to tell people if you just say I am this that is how it will be, that you'll manifest it, as people say. I think what's more powerful is what you're doing, which is saying, this isn't working for me. How can it fit my revolution? How can I make this powerful for me? For some people, it may work to say, I am beautiful or I am strong. But for many of us, just saying that is not enough. We have to bring ourselves into, as you described it, the realm of possibility and belief. There is science. I I think what you did is really interesting because there is science to show that asking insightful questions is more powerful in the brain in terms of uh, neuroplasticity than saying statements. So I think that might be part of what you tapped into. Well, and I think for me, because I am such an in-my-head person, I have to reason things out that rather than Mm -hmm. saying I am beautiful, I say to myself, what if I was beautiful? It is true. And If you really pay attention um, to all of the tools that I talk about, you'll see that they really bring you back into your body and out of your mind. And I think you're tapping into that right now, which is that when we only stay in our mind, it's not that the mind isn't powerful, but if we're only solving or working on things in our mind, what you're describing is really useful for people to understand. We can get in a back and forth, in a ruminating, in a sort of uh, perseverating mode where we're just focused on the logistics. When we step into our body, what happens is we actually use our nervous system to heal. We use our body to heal because what we talked about before about trauma in the body is what I say to patients every day is that trauma lives in the body, but that's also where it powerfully heals. And you're tapping into that with what you're saying. Now, would you talk to us a little bit about intergenerational pain? Yes. So Rachel Yehuda is a brilliant, um, she's in your neck of the woods, brilliant researcher who really did a lot of the epigenetic research. I talk about her in the book. Uh, She did it around Holocaust survivors and really looking at the children and grandchildren and showing that um, it wasn't just that these children and grandchildren grew up around stories or listening about the Holocaust, but that they're actually their DNA markers had changed from the trauma. And she really brought a whole new power to trauma living in the body. And what we found since her research over and over is that this is true and that these markers can be modified. It gives us hope. It shows us that people go through trauma. It affects their family tree, but their family can also modify it by these practices. And so I think about this a lot. I have parents, not just grandparents, but parents who went through the partition of Pakistan and India, uh, very similar to the kind of trauma and lives lost of the Holocaust. And I grew up with that, but I also don't know if that created more hypervigilance in my body, which I have felt my whole life, that kind of hypervigilance. And when I work on my nervous system, I think about how I'm healing the DNA of my family. And so there's a lot of power in this. People always 
ask me, can I make changes so that my children and grandchildren have it differently? And I think the answer so far is yes, it looks like we can. I mean, there's just powerful changes on these epigenetic markers. So I, it, I want people to hear that the changes happen. It is not that you're making it up if you come from a family where trauma was experienced. But I also want people to hear the hope, which is that you have the power to also modify that. The first time I had learned about intergenerational trauma, I found it fascinating because two years before I was born, my parents lost my brother. He was 14. He passed away. And then I was born two years later. And it it does explain to me a lot of the things that I've experienced within myself. Um, And I do agree with you that there is hope because I am doing a lot of work on myself. Yeah. And it's, and I find it fascinating too, but I also think it's empowering, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's powerful to hear that you can feel that, yes, that explains some of this and I'm working on it. Right. And I feel like every time that's the key really here, I'm going to let everyone in on a secret, which is not a secret because I tell you in the book, but If you can acknowledge your pain, your past trauma, your present pain, if you can sit with that and actually work on it, joy is more accessible to you. And the fact that we try to suppress it and try to forget about it or try to make it all okay in this kind of toxic positivity kind of world we live in, that is actually harmful. And so it is this act of acknowledging working on it that can lead us to more bliss. You know, I tell people all the time that when my son was diagnosed with this horrible ALS-like disease, I thought joy would be inaccessible. At the time, I also just interchangeably confused it with happiness. So I thought it was all inaccessible. But what I know now is I was happier before that diagnosis, and I've never now, though, been as joyful as I am now. So I did not know true joy before that. Everything that you've been describing, the problem is that you were talking about suppressing our feelings. We don't want to feel that pain because to get to the other side, you have to go through the pain. You have to deal with it and, and, and heal from it. And it's not easy. So is there advice that you can offer as a mom who just described what you've experienced and also as a medical professional to help someone take that first step to do the deep, hard work? Yes. I get this question a lot. I get it more in the form of people coming up to me after a presentation and saying, I was so moved, but I don't think I can do that. You can imagine that's a very common uh, statement that I'm here. I first always tell anyone listening, this is just an invitation. It's an invitation to a different way of managing, living, being with your emotions. You come into it when you feel ready. But I also offer that it doesn't take the deepest, hardest step first to make this work. You can take the lightest first step. I think your story of the person who said, I couldn't feel grateful, but I could be grateful for a bird or a piece of a flower or whatever it is. That is a first light step. A first light step is offering yourself compassion. There's neuroscience. I go into depth in the book about this, but it really matters. A first step is saying, I feel really sad today, and I'm just going to say that. I'm going to own that. I'm not going to try to make it different. 
You know, so there are lots of first light steps and the harder work can feel overwhelming, but the light steps can make that harder work feel less solid. And the third thing that I feel really strongly about is that, you know, people will say, I just can't do this. It sounds too hard. I would challenge that the way we're living by suppressing our emotions is even harder. We may not realize it every day because it involves distraction from the emotions, but it comes up in other ways. We're either irritable, unable to manage relationships, don't really feel like we can connect with people, or more often what I see in my exam room is real physical symptoms, the havoc and impact of that stress on the body. So this will catch up to you one way or the other. And the question is, how can I sit with what's happening instead of putting it away? The book is Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. Doctor, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Yeah, well, they can go to my website. It's my first and last name, MD, ThanmeetSetiMD.com. And there's my book and how to buy it and there's some bonuses for you if you buy it, but you can also look up my book anywhere. It's available anywhere books are sold on all formats. And then um, I'm most active on social media on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well, but Instagram's where I would love to hear from listeners and uh, your takeaways and how you like the book. And doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what is the takeaway? <laughs> what would you like to leave our listeners with? The takeaway is that joy is accessible to all of us, regardless of what you're going through, your race, your gender expression, your financial status. Joy is a powerful birthright, and it is available to all. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I was so honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.